congregation. The text for the sermon this afternoon is the Word of God as the church has summarized and confessed it in Lord's Day 48 of the Heidelberg Catechism. You find that beginning on page 561 of the Book of Praise. In Lord's Day 48, the church confesses what is the second petition, your kingdom come. That is, so rule us by your word and spirit that more and more we submit to you. Preserve and increase your church. Destroy the works of the devil, every power that raises itself against you, and every conspiracy against your holy word. Do all this until the fullness of your kingdom comes, wherein you shall be all in all. And after the proclamation of God's word, we will begin to respond with the singing of Psalm 60, the stanzas 2, 3, and 5. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, when we deal with the coming of the kingdom of God, then sometimes it seems like there are actually more questions than there are answers. Where exactly is this kingdom? What does it mean that a kingdom will come? How do we line up praying this petition today with the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ came 2,000 years ago preaching that the kingdom had come? And the questions go on from there. With all those questions about the kingdom, we can be led to wonder how we can pray for something that we can hardly begin to understand or comprehend. But then it's good that our chief prophet and teacher, he, in he instructs us more about the kingdom of God than anyone else in Scripture. He explains many different aspects of the kingdom from many different angles. In Matthew 13, our Lord gives some powerful instruction by means of parables concerning the kingdom, and these help the disciples especially to understand more about it. By speaking in parables, the secrets of the kingdom were hidden from those who were spiritually unresponsive, but to those who had the ear to listen, the Lord Jesus had much to say. And by considering his words, we also get a deeper sense of the kingdom and what we are praying for when we use the words of the second petition, your kingdom come. I proclaim to you the word of God this afternoon under the following theme. The citizens pray for the coming of the kingdom of God. And we'll see that this is a prayer for the preservation of the subjects of God. It's a prayer for the defeat of the opposition to God. And finally, it's a prayer for the final victory of God. Brothers and sisters, when we think about a kingdom, or when we speak about a kingdom, then we're used to thinking about a specific territory over which a king or a queen reigns. In our mind, we have a physical landmass that's defined by very specific borders. But with the kingdom of God, it doesn't quite work that way. 
instead of defining the kingdom in this petition by any geographical landmass, the kingdom is defined by its ruler, who is God. We sang about the rule of God in Psalm 97. But every king is also going to have subjects. It is impossible for someone to be a king somewhere, but not have subjects who serve him and who do his will. Through both our scripture reading and our confession, we learn about who these subjects of God the King are. In Lord's Day 48, then we see that with the second petition, we're praying that God would rule us more and more by his word and spirit. We're also praying that he would preserve and increase his church. And that's also what we found in our scripture reading. When Jesus explains the parable of the weeds to his disciples, he tells them in verse 38 that the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. However, we need to notice that this good seed, the sons and the daughters of the kingdom, they don't just pop up by themselves. No, they're sown by the farmer. That is, they are planted in the kingdom by the one who sows the seed, and that is Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. Well, from that, we learn something very important about the citizens of the kingdom of God. This is not the normal earthly kingdom where people are born with a natural citizenship in the kingdom. They aren't given the right of citizenship by their birth alone. No, they are brought into the kingdom by the one who has the authority in the kingdom, their Lord and Savior. Their citizenship is not a right of birth. It is a gift of grace. And they too are given a passport confirming their citizenship. Only this passport is not a little booklet that has all their personal information and then a few pages for when they go visit another country. No, their passport is given to them at their baptism. And this passport that the citizens of the kingdom are given, it says more about the king than it does about the citizens. This passport says what the king has done. It says how the king has brought the citizens into the kingdom. And that's where all the emphasis belongs, is on the king. Because when we administer the sacrament of baptism, then as we read the form, we're struck by that humbling statement we find right at the beginning. First, we and our children are born in sin and are therefore by nature children of wrath so that we cannot enter the kingdom of God unless we are born again. There again, you have that language of the kingdom coming out. Just by birth, we are not naturally citizens of a kingdom. Our citizenship is a gift of grace from the triune God who confirms our citizenship by placing his seal on our foreheads. So we're certainly not talking this afternoon about a physical kingdom that exists here on earth. A kingdom that's marked by borders or by a land mass. No, as Christ himself told Pontius Pilate, his kingdom is not of this world but it is a spiritual kingdom. It's a kingdom 
in which the citizens are ruled by God the King through His Word and through His Spirit. And that is why with the second petition, we are taught to pray for the coming of the kingdom, which means that more and more we submit to the king who has given us the rights and privileges of citizenship in his kingdom. With the second petition, we're praying that God, our king, would rule us, that he would govern us by his word and spirit so that we reflect in our lives the obedience that we owe to him, as well as the wonderful privileges that he's freely given us in his grace. And already, when you hear that early explanation of the second petition, then we're given the very clear sense that we don't serve the king as we should. We're going to deal more with the enemies in the second point a little bit later, but we have to look at this fact that there's not a perfect submission in place that ought to be. And so you get the sense that the kingdom of God at this moment, it's not a kingdom that's at peace. It's at war. There is a tension that exists. There are two competing kings fighting for the loyalty and submission of the subjects. But by praying the second petition as our Savior taught us, there's also the confession on the part of the subjects that we do know which king we ought to serve. Again, as we consider prayer in the catechism, we're dealing with the area of thankfulness. It's our response to the salvation and deliverance we have obtained through Jesus Christ. We know what he's done by his death on the cross. We know that it's by his sacrifice that he's made us citizens of the kingdom of God. But knowing that reality forces the reaction from us that we more and more submit to our great and our glorious king. By praying the second petition, we're making the confession that we want to serve the merciful king who's rescued us by his grace. But we also realize that we cannot do that of ourselves. And so we plead with him to increasingly rule us using his chosen means, namely his word and by his spirit. For to remain as citizens of this kingdom it requires the response of faith. God, our King, came to us at our baptism. He said, you are mine. I've brought you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of my light and my love. But that's not the end of the story either. It isn't though that everyone receives the promise and then lives happily ever after. Though the promise of grace requires that we believe that promise, that we accept that promise in faith, and then we live as citizens of God's kingdom. Congregation, when we think about the kingdom of God, there's a danger that we right away think too big. We think right away of the enemies being defeated, the enemies getting the judgment and the punishment that they deserve. We think of everyone of all times and places bowing the knee to Jesus Christ. And certainly that is part of the package when we're talking about the kingdom of God. But the catechism forces us to slow down. To think first and foremost about what praying for the coming of the kingdom means to each one of us personally. For you cannot think big if you are not part of the coming of the kingdom. 
If the king does not rule in your heart and your life by his word and spirit, then you are outside of his kingdom. And therefore, our Savior and our Master teaches us to pray for the coming of the kingdom also in our lives. He teaches us to pray that we are taught the way of submission to the king, that we are instructed so that we grow in obedience to our king. As it stands, brothers and sisters, we are not perfect citizens by any stretch of the imagination. We are not perfectly submissive to our king. There is still that rebellious streak in each one of us. Submission and obedience are things that we must grow in, things that must happen more and more as we confess in the catechism. And that also came out in our scripture reading. There the Lord Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven was like a mustard seed. It starts as the smallest of all the seeds, but it grows into that large tree. Well, that's what our lives should look like in submission to the king as well. Our submission needs to grow. Our obedience needs to increase. It starts small, so small. And as we confess in Lord's Day 44, even the holiest in this life have only a small beginning of the obedience that God requires. But yet we pray the second petition, asking God to govern us by his word and his spirit so that that growth, that increase, it does actually happen. Without praying the second petition, we automatically go backwards. Without praying the second petition, we move away from submission to God as king, and that rebellious streak only grows stronger. Now, while the coming of the kingdom first points to each one of us individually, it also means that we are praying for the preservation and the increase of the church. We see that many times throughout the Psalms, a prayer for the Old Testament church that was centered around the temple and on Mount Zion. Psalm 51, verse 18, David prays, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Psalm 122, verse 6, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. But from the Catechism's explanation, we can see that the kingdom of God, it is not the exact equivalent of the church. The kingdom is bigger than the church. The church, it has been said, it is the army of the kingdom, but a kingdom is bigger than just its army. And yet, with a stronger army, the kingdom will be able to grow and will be able to expand. So you cannot separate the church from the kingdom of God either. It's impossible to have the desire to carry out kingdom work, but to not have a love for the church. As we said earlier, the kingdom of God is a kingdom that is at war. There are attacks that come from every side, every direction. And therefore, in the midst of this battle, our Savior teaches the citizens and the soldiers of the kingdom to cry out to the king that he preserve his army that he strengthen his army, that he equip them so that they can stand against the attacks and defend themselves. And here you see some of the connections in the catechism. 
By praying the second petition, our Savior is first teaching us that we pray for our own increase in faith and obedience. But where do we get these things? We receive this instruction that we need when we go to church. When we gather together where the word of God is proclaimed, where the Spirit uses that word to strengthen us and to encourage us, to make us once again ready for the battle that lies before us. However, the second petition is not only about preserving the church, it's also about increasing the church. We pray that the army of the kingdom would grow like a mustard seed, not only in faith and obedience, but also that it would grow in numbers. Again, that's tied to another parable that we read earlier. The Lord Jesus Christ has sown the seed. He's planted a definite number of people to be the children of the kingdom. And only when that number has reached its fullness can the kingdom fully come. Only when the harvest is ready can it actually be taken in. And when we think about this petition from the perspective of praying for the preservation and increase of the church, then we can see very practically how God does answer that prayer. We can see his answer in the fact that we have a slate of men who can serve as office bearers in the church. We can see his answer in the fact that children are born. We can see his answer in the conversion of unbelievers. These are part of God's way of answering our prayer in the second petition. But we also need to keep the proper perspective throughout it all. Because this is not a matter of us building our kingdom. We don't pray, my kingdom come. No, this is God causing his kingdom to come, his kingdom to grow, his kingdom to spread and to increase. This is God making it clear that he is winning the battle between the two kingdoms. And if God is really winning that battle, it means that the opposition is losing, which is also what we pray for in the second petition and which is what we will consider now in our second point. In Lord's Day 48 of the Catechism, we also confess that when we pray this petition, it includes the prayer that God would destroy the works of the devil, every power that raises itself against him, and every conspiracy against his holy word. Now notice, brothers and sisters, how in this Lord's Day the focus is not on the three sworn enemies that attack us every day. No, the focus here is on the head of the opposition, namely the devil or Satan. He's the commander of the forces of darkness, the one who seeks the destruction of the kingdom of God and who seeks the defeat of the citizens of the kingdom as well. But in order to carry out his task of destruction, he does use other resources. And we'll focus on these tools that he uses this afternoon. That's also the direction that our Lord Jesus points us to in the parable of the weeds. There you have the farmer who sows the good seed, the Lord Jesus sowing the children of the kingdom of God. But you also have the enemy of the farmer who comes to sow weeds among the good seed. 
And the Lord Jesus says in Matthew 13, verse 38 and 39, that this enemy is the devil and that these weeds are the sons of the evil one. These sons of the evil one and the sons of the kingdom, they're together in this world. It's not always easy to separate between the two parties either. In fact, in this world, they are very much intertwined. If we look at the parable again, then while the servants of the master wanted to pull out the weeds right away, their master wouldn't allow them to do so because it would cause damage to the crop. It would happen that their roots would be tangled together very quickly. So the weeds and the good crop live together in this world. And when you think about it, brothers and sisters, this is actually a brilliant strategy of Satan the enemy. Because he knows human nature. He knows that people are so easily influenced by others. He knows that by sowing his seed, he can do great damage to the citizens of God's kingdom. That's also what the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Citizens of God's kingdom can be easily influenced by the sons of the evil one, and we deceive ourselves if we think otherwise. The citizens of the two kingdoms are now together in this world. We cannot escape from that. We can't run away from the children of the kingdom of Satan. However, that does not mean we have to lose our proper perspective. Now, brothers and sisters, when we talk about the two children living together, we talk about them influencing each other, that we're not preaching against doing mission work, not at all. We are called to be a salt and a light in this world. We're called to witness to the gospel of Christ. But that doesn't mean we have to lose our wisdom either. So quickly we forget what is called the antithesis. There's the kingdom of God. There's the kingdom of Satan. There are sons and daughters of the kingdom of God. There are sons and daughters of the kingdom of Satan. And Satan wants as much intermingling as possible because he knows that his children can influence the children of God. Satan is the one who wants marriage between believers and unbelievers, for example. He is the one who wants the corruption of morals and ethics of those inside the church. In fact, he's the one that wants more contact and more contact so that the children of God's kingdom are desensitized to the standard. And we see it happening in this world all around us, including our own country. We see the children of darkness influencing the children of God so that it's the ideas of the weeds that are taking roots in the hearts of the sons and daughters of the kingdom of God. The citizens of God's kingdom are told that they need to relax. They need to loosen up. They need to be more accepting. They need to be more tolerant. It is an evil strategy of Satan that works more and more, and that is because being influenced by the weeds does not mean completely accepting the ideas they promote. In fact, the greatest danger facing the citizens of the kingdom today, it is the idea of neutrality. We are told that we are not to take a position on anything outwardly, 
We're told that what we believe in our heart must stay in our heart. It cannot be outwardly demonstrated at all. We are told that we are to be politically correct because to disagree with someone is to offend them. And offending someone is the cardinal sin in the kingdom of Satan. In that kingdom, you don't take positions on anything outwardly. In that kingdom, you just live at peace with everyone. You hide what you truly believe and you just follow the loudest group. You don't make a fuss. Yes, you can believe what you want, but you keep it to yourself. And above all, you make sure that you never offend anyone by disagreeing with them and telling them that what they do is wrong. And that thinking is not only something that exists in the world, but it penetrates into the citizens of God's kingdom as well. We fear going to speak with our fellow believers, to talk to them about their sin as our Lord teaches us to do in Matthew 18. And why do we have that fear? Isn't it because we don't want to hurt them? We don't want to offend them. We don't want to cause tension in our relationships, and so we would rather choose to turn a blind eye. And so rather than being ruled by the word and spirit, citizens of God's kingdom, they become increasingly world ruled by the so-called wisdom and philosophy of this world. It is a power that raises itself against God. It is all the design of the great enemy of God who seeks the destruction of God's kingdom. But there's more that we have to deal with because there's also what the catechism calls conspiracies against God's holy word. You see, the enemy of God's kingdom doesn't just seek to attack the people in God's kingdom. No, he wants to attack the standards and the teaching of the king as well. With every false teaching, with every heresy, the evil one has another way of wreaking havoc in the church, the army of the king. When a false teaching or an error arises in the church, then it's not an accident. It is a direct attack of the kingdom of darkness on the kingdom of God. When people question the truth or the reliability of the scriptures, it's a direct attack on God the King. It's an attempt to stop his kingdom from coming at all. When the Bible is not seen as the only authority for faith and life, but it's held out just as another interesting book filled with one-sided history that is purely the work of the servants of darkness, there's no other way to think about such things. And these aren't just hypothetical examples either. They are things that we are directly confronted with in our world today. The accounts in the Bible are read by many people with interest, but they're so often thought just to be legends. The teachings of the Bible, they are ridiculed by many as being unrealistic, as being out of touch with reality. People say you can't prove them to be true. You can't prove creation. You can't prove the death or the resurrection of Christ. They say it's all just a nice story. But it is a conspiracy against God's holy word. The battle lines have been drawn. And when we recognize these plots of darkness, then we realize 
why our Lord Jesus Christ teaches us to urgently pray the second petition, your kingdom come. In the end, brothers and sisters, there can only be one, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of Satan. Those two kingdoms will not exist side by side forever. There's going to be a winner. There's going to be a loser. So which one do you choose? Where do you want your citizenship? Do you want the kingdom of God? The kingdom where you have been made a citizen by the grace of God through the precious blood of his son. Because if you want that, then you pray that this kingdom would come, that it would advance, that it would make progress, meaning also that God would destroy the attacks of the evil one and his forces, that he would put an end to them. You pray this petition, asking God to teach you how to recognize the different attacks that the devil launches against you. You pray your kingdom come, meaning, Lord, protect me against the different attacks of the evil one, because I know my weakness. I know how easily I can be led astray. You pray that God rule you by his word and spirit, and that through these means he also destroy the demonic attacks of the evil one. And yes, you pray this petition in confidence and in faith, because you know that the final victory of God is assured and that the coming of his kingdom is certain. We come to our third point. and sisters, we've said a number of times that right now, the kingdom of God, it is at war with the opposing kingdom of Satan. But that's not a new war that began sometime recently. Actually, we can read about the beginning of the war in Scripture. We can read God's declaration of war on Satan. We find it in Genesis 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. There God declared war on the enemy who had destroyed his good creation. But with that very declaration of war, God also made it very clear that he was going to have the final victory. Yes, the devil would have his own little bits of success along the way. He would even bruise the heel of the offspring of the woman. But in the end, God said that the offspring of the woman was going to bruise the head of the devil. And bruising the head is much more significant and decisive than simply bruising the heel. The offspring of the woman was going to have the victory. And we know that this offspring was the Lord Jesus Christ, who has won that decisive victory against sin and Satan. He has obtained life for the citizens of the kingdom through his death on the cross. He has sealed the fate for the devil and his children. And the whole time, brothers and sisters, the devil tried to fight against it. He tried to prevent Christ from coming into this world, and he failed the entire time. Christ has won the great and the glorious victory, and the devil cannot overcome him. If the battle for the kingdom would rest simply on our shoulders, if it would rely on our strength, 
then yes, we'd have a hopeless cause before us. But the battle doesn't rest on us. It rests on what our Savior has already done. It rests on the victory he has obtained. And that is why we can pray this petition with certainty and with joy. That's also what comes out very strongly in our confession. The last statement of answer 123 is, Do all this until the fullness of your kingdom comes, wherein you shall be all in all. Did you notice the language of certainty there? Do all this until the fullness of your kingdom comes. This is not a hope that we are expressing, as though there's even a possibility that the kingdom of God won't come. No, the fullness of his kingdom coming is a complete certainty. And that's because Jesus Christ has won the battle. He's defeated the great enemy of God. Right now, we're living in the time where the children of the devil are mixed in with the children of God. We're all living in the same world. But a time is coming where there will be a permanent separation between the two. That's also what our chief prophet and teacher made clear in the parable of the weeds. The explanation of the parable found in Matthew 13, verse 41 and following, he says that the Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But the righteous... They will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. The kingdom of God is not just something in the future that we hope is going to exist one day. No, the kingdom of God is a present reality in which we live today. But what we experience is not the fullness of that kingdom. The number of the sons of the kingdom has not yet reached its completion. The harvest is not quite ready, but it is growing, it is maturing. And on that day when the last seed matures, then the Son of Man will come and the kingdom of God will exist in its fullness. And then we will see it all. Then we will see the final defeat of the great enemy of God, Satan, the ruler of darkness, Then we will see the defeat of all the forces of evil that tried to destroy God's kingdom. And we long for the day when God's rule is fully established, when his kingdom has come in fullness, where God is all in all, because then there will be no enemy, then there will be no misery, there will be no suffering, there will only be joy and thankfulness as we live with God, enjoying full communion with him for eternity. Yes, we long for that day. God also longs for the day where the fullness of his kingdom is restored. And therefore, we may take on our lips the words of Revelation 22, verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Come, Lord Jesus, Maranatha, your kingdom come. Amen.